Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is episode number 33 of The Next Track. It's the end of the year, and we're taking a break this week from producing a new podcast. Instead, we're secretly replacing our usual half hour with a uh, full hour or so sampler from previous episodes. And we'd like to thank Softerino, the makers of Walter 2 Software, for sponsoring this special year-end episode of The Next Track. Using Walter 2, you can transfer any kind of media to your iOS device without iTunes and without loss. More on the amazing Walter 2 in a little bit. Right now, we'll begin with a disarming question from Kirk for New Yorker music critic Alex Ross, who was a guest on episode number 18. Let's just start with a simple question. What exactly is classical music? Well, that's that's the 10000 or $64 million uh, question, or however you want to evaluate it. Uh, it's, there's there's the, the, the popular meaning and, and the real meaning. And, you know, the, the popular meaning is um, music of the past, uh, music for the concert hall, music for the, for the opera house uh, of the 19th century and earlier. Uh, people, you know, are, are vaguely aware uh, of the existence of contemporary composers, but it's usually not included in the different definition. Uh, once you see it as a, as a living, ongoing, ever-evolving uh, tradition, then the definition collapses completely. You, you, you really can't uh, put uh, this, this, this vast range of music into a category when it includes you know, composed music, um, uh, improvised music, semi-improvised music, electronic music, uh, sound art, site-specific installations, etc., etc. You know, this, this, this incredibly huge uh, spectrum of, of music that's being produced right now uh, makes it in incredibly difficult sometimes to to decide where does classical music stop and where does say popular music start where does uh, you know the art world start you know the the, the, the borders uh, around the uh, contemporary activity are, are very hazy uh, nonetheless we kind of know instinctively <laughs> when it's still classical music uh, and when it's sort of turning into something else uh, but it's it's really interesting how difficult it can be right now to uh, verbalize uh, to articulate uh, that definition in one of our earliest episodes we talked about genres and the way genre were created more as a marketing tool than anything else. And I'm thinking back to the days when I grew up in New York and I'd go into the Sam Goody's on Fifth Avenue and I'd go to the classical bin because it was classical. And probably even then you had the minimalists like Philip Glass and Steve Reich in that bin. But I guess even back then we didn't have the wide range of music that would fit under classical today. Um, I'm thinking of the, the kind of music that ensembles like the Kronos Quartet or Eight Blackbird play that, that are borderline classical jazz, improv, etc. Back then, there wasn't as much, was there? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's a, it's a question of, you know, what's really becoming visible and, and what's being recorded and what's being recognized, you know, because the whole of the 20th century, you had all this activity, which didn't really fall into the uh, accepted uh, definitions, but it's just become more and more difficult to ignore 
uh, in recent decades. Uh, the fact that you know what composers do, and that's that's what I think of you know, classical. If I had to define it, I'd say classical music is what composers do. But you know, even even that's a problematic definition because you have jazz composers, you have you know popular song composers, uh, but. But there, there is this lineage. I mean, it is, it is fundamentally about a lineage, but the lineage keeps multiplying and diversifying and going in so many different directions that it's really actually exhausting to keep track of it. You know, my job has gotten more and more difficult as the years have gone by because there's just so much more of it. And, you know, getting into another topic, technology, the internet, um, uh, it, it's so much easier to hear it, to hear everything else uh, that's happening uh, around the world uh, that, you know, I just sometimes am sitting here feeling I just can't keep up. It's, there's just, uh, too much, but of course it's, you know, the, the really number one thing that I do that's sort of in my job description is to filter out the sheer excess of what's happening and select and, and help people to, to focus on, okay, here's a particular composer you should be listening to. Uh, and so, yes, <laughs> that's, that's my job. A good example of that is the playlists that you post on your website. Your website is therestisnoise.com. There'll be links to all this in the show notes, of course. And unlike most people who put playlists, which are a song, I'm doing that in air quotes, followed by another song, what you do is you just list albums. And in the most recent one, at the time we're recording, you have John Adams, who's a living composer, Sibelius, uh, who's dead, Robert Carl, I'm not familiar with, is he alive? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Messiaen, who died a few years ago, Stravinsky, Anna Natrebko and Antonio Papiano singing Verismo. Is that a selection of arias? Yeah, Natrebko singing, you know, uh, Puccini and his... Right, so 19th century. Darcy James argues Secret Society. Presumably that's a contemporary group. And Bartok. So you've got classical minimalism, opera, things on the fringe, and you don't build a wall around the music to keep certain kinds of music out, if I can use a political metaphor. Yeah, well, these playlists, and I guess this is a microcosm of, of what I do generally, uh, contain some very obvious mainstream, uh, you know, standard definition classical music, uh, and then some music which is uh, likely to be, you know, uh, more obscure to a lot of people or is is sort of on the, on the border of some other uh, genre, a lot of new music. And so I, I, I mix the familiar and the obscure, and this is what I do in my New Yorker column. Uh, it goes back and forth from, uh, you know, uh, opening night at the Met, uh, new production of Tristan und Isolde, to, uh, you know, I just wrote a column about the Vandalweiser uh, group of composers uh, who will be new to uh, a lot of people, uh, and so that's the the methodology, um, and and it's 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 a sort of strategy, you know, not to sort of throw too much unfamiliar material uh, at the readers, uh, and also, you know, I mean, it, it's you know, as much as I'm interested in uh, the you know ever changing contemporary definition of classical music, I'm also very devoted to the tradition. I grew up with it, and and I want to write about it, and of course there are obviously fantastically talented performers now who are maintaining uh, and extending that tradition. Uh, and so, I mean, this is <laughs> where the job gets more and more difficult, is that, you know, aside from the incredible diversity of contemporary activity, you have a thousand years of music, uh, so much of which is being 
rediscovered uh, or people are finding new and seemingly better or more authentic, more um, idiomatic ways of performing, you know, music from 400, 500, 600 years ago. Uh, so the repertory of the past keeps expanding too, uh, as well as the, uh, you know, the, the repertory of the present. Yeah, and, and that's something we saw I'm particularly interested in early music and in, in the historically informed performance movement, which I guess started really in the 50s, but became more common in the 70s, changed the way people looked at that music, changed the way they approached, say, Bach St. Matthew Passion instead of having 100 chorists, maybe doing it with only eight. But then, of course, you get on into all these doctrinal arguments and you get these, how would you call it, these scholarly feuds with letters and articles and journals and things. And it can get kind of overwhelming for the average listener, even if the listener has a bit of musical understanding, to try and follow a lot of this. Yeah, it is. And the facade can seem intimidating and the language can be dogmatic and pedantic uh, and so on. But the, actually, the music making itself and the early music area is fantastically exciting right now. Uh, there's a tremendous aliveness and spontaneity to a lot of these early music groups because, you know, what they've discovered, you know, they discovered a long time ago, but they, they, they keep sort of perfecting the approach to this question, uh, is that, you know, the score is is extremely minimal uh, in so many cases in, in, the, in the Baroque period and, and before. Uh, it really gives you only the, the sketch uh, of what you're supposed to do with the instrument or with your voice. Uh, and, you know, the scores of, uh, of sort of those prior periods assumed that the performer would fill in, you know, all the gaps. If you just play the notes that are on the page, uh, it will be inadequate. <laughs> It'll be sort of nowhere near uh, what it's supposed to sound like. Uh, you know, it, uh, players are expected to ornament their lines. Singers are expected to ornament. There are, you know, passages where improvisation be, would be expected or simply kind of flavorful personal uh, variation and uh, elaboration. Uh, so, so people have learned to do all that. And as a result, um, the performances have a kind of novelty and and moment to moment vibrancy, which I think is quite different from your standard performance of the 19th century repertory, where everything really is fixed. Uh, in performance right now, the big, big question is, can that same elasticity and and improvisational spirit enter into the performance of Beethoven, Schumann, and Brahms, you know, as well as Monteverdi, uh, Vivaldi, and Bach, you know, can can we have some of that same atmosphere uh, instead of performances, which do seem so fixed and, and tied down. And really, fundamentally, when you step way back, very little significant variation from, you know, one person's Beethoven fifth to another. You know, there can be tempo variations and, and you know, variations of emphasis, but, you know, basically you're getting uh, the same thing. That's not the case when you're listening to, you know, 17th, uh, 18th century music. You know, two performances of the same piece can sound like two different pieces. Um, and, and that's wonderful. You know, I think that's, that's, that is what we should be doing with the music of the past. Now, when we wanted to know more about the process of mastering an album, we went to one of the experts, renowned mastering engineer Sanwuk Nam, 
from episode number 15. Can you describe the process when I assume you get digital files these days? You make it sound like it just takes a day to master an album. How does it work? You get these files, you load them into something, you listen to them. What, what do you do now to master an album? Yeah, so um, these days I have to consider characteristics of listening environment, also storage media that is to be consumed. First of all, uh, people are not listening to the music in a quiet environment at all these days. People are listening to music when they're jogging, when they're driving, or when they're walking the street. So I have to cope with that fact because if there are like very quiet stuff for the intro or outro, that which are not going to be heard on the louder environment if I, if I won't do anything about it. So I have to bring up those quiet stuff up to a certain level, but not hurting the actual balance of the whole song. That's a, like, a very delicate decision that I had to make. Also, like other stuff that, that are recorded or mixed as a lower level, I have to bring those up so that people can hear it in a louder environment as well. So those are the changes that I had to make without hurting the feelings of producers or engineers or artists. And the musicians, maybe, maybe the musician um, whose, whose instrument was high in the mix in the tapes you got, all of a sudden you've lowered it and the musician's going to feel that he's in the background. Yeah, exactly. So I, yeah, so they're... There are a lot of you know, hurt feelings going on when, <laughs> when they're here. In the vinyl days, when the, the band's coming in to the studio and they realize that, that their music is too long to make it as loud as other music, then they have to cut out the parts to make it short. There are not, no, ways, no other ways to do it. Because if the music's louder, it takes up more space on the record yeah. and you can't put as much music on the record. Yeah, exactly. So that determination is made at the mastering point when they've... They've already recorded and mixed and tweaked everything, and yeah. this is the way they want their record to sound, and then you come along and say, sorry, we have to lose 10 minutes. Or do you want to make your album rec uh, quieter than other commercial records or not? Then they have to decide which part to take out. Then now it's, it gets very interesting. You're going to take my guitar intro, 8-bar? That's not going <laughs> to happen. And then... My chorus? No. So like, there are a lot of heart feelings going on in the mastering, so it's not new. But thank God, because I'm usually uh, by myself working, so I don't get those <laughs> you, you don't have people looking over your shoulder. and Right. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is the, the media itself, because these days a lot of media is being consumed. CD, iTunes, high-res, vinyl. So I have to reconsider my EQ or my whole process for other media, like vinyl cutting master or high-res music, I don't need to bring up the intro because I know that the high-res is going to be heard in a quiet environment. So I had to take my pleasure to bring it down as original. So those are stuff that I have to make a decision in the mastering. Does it mean that you, you've got a new album today, you get the digital files. Do you make one version of the album if there's a vinyl release, one for CD release, one for high resolution, and one for iTunes? You're actually making four different versions of your mastering. I do. Wow. I don't know. I can't say any other mastering engineer's work, but at least on my work, yeah. There are a couple uh, tools that I can listen uh, real time, how it would sound like in uh, master iTunes or... Uh, lower quality iTunes when I'm doing it, when I do the equalizer or compressor. So in that way, I can hear what they're going to hear, what the consumer is going to hear. 
So it's it's great. So you, you were just talking about some of the tools you use. Earlier, you said you adjust volume. You were talking about equalizer, which is to adjust frequencies, and compressor, which is to compress the volume so it can be louder. What other tools do you apply to the music? I think, I think that's about it. Also, there's another uh, the form of limiter, a compressor that's called brick wall limiter, which is uh, make, just, just to make music loud. That is the digital plugin. There's only plugin, only digital stuff that I'm using. Well, uh, but um, That's the only digital plugin you what use? What do you mean? Do you work with tape? Uh, all, all, all the process that I'm doing is done on the analog side. Really? Wow. So I don't use any uh, digital tools at all until it's converted to a digital at the very end. And there's one more process for to make it loud, which is Bricolimiter. Okay, hold on. I'm, I'm not sure I understand. You get a digital file. Right. And then you work on it with analog tools. Yep. And then you reconvert it from analog to digital. Right. That's interesting. Why do you do that rather than doing everything digitally? Because I still haven't got any digital plugins that sound better than uh, my analog tools. And if you look at the um, very well-known mastering studios, and you will see uh, lines of analog equalizer and compressor that are being used. So as far as I know, all the mastering engineers that I respect are using uh, analog compressor and analog equalizer as their, their main tool. So I'm, I'm trying to think, um, what, what do I know about this? Um, I know that if you have a digital file, you get artifacts when you're using compression, when you're using equalization. But if you're doing it with analog, you don't get any of those artifacts. Is that correct? There are different artifacts. All the artifacts will not be heard at the, at the same thing. Some of the artifacts will be heard as a distortion, which makes the music sounds bad. Some of the, the artifacts will be heard as a musical or euphonic effect. Like Transformers, people love. It's adding odd harmonics, or even, I think it's odd harmonics, right? Not even harmonics. Uh, dif different harmonics, which is a distortion. But it's a very euphonic distortion, which makes sounds greater, very musical. So there are those artifacts on one side, on, usually on the digital side, those artifacts will be heard more like sterile or like very digital. Those artifacts will be regarded as a, something bad or something not musical. Uh, you know, people always talk about the analog sound being warmer, which is basically that slight distortion you get from a record or from a tape. D do you feel that that adds something when you're working in analog or are your tools good enough that it doesn't really alter the sound that much? Yeah, my goal is to gather the tools that doesn't change the sound. Or it changes the sound in a good way. But usually I don't get, I don't get to use the tools that change the sound at all. So my goal on my, on my work is to use the tools that retains all the details and all the harmonics, all the little you know, minor informations that the artist or engineer wants to put so that I don't lose that. So that's my goal, yeah. Let's take a short break and we'll return to our year-end sampler in just a minute. Let me tell you now about Walter II from Soft Arena. Walter II seriously opened up a whole new audio world for me. I've been using iTunes with an iPod or iPhone or iPad for years and I've pretty much locked myself into only using the audio formats that iTunes uses. But you know, there's a lot of music available to download that's in FLAC or AUG Vorbis, but because I'm using iTunes, I can't play those kinds of files. Well, I can now with Walter 2. With my iOS device connected, I can drag and drop FLAC files on my iMac right to Walter 2. 
it'll convert them without any loss to a format that the iOS music app can play. In this case, Flack gets converted to Apple Lossless. And I've got the content on my phone. All those live shows I can download in Flack, I can finally play them. And Walter 2 works with lots of video and book formats too. Walter 2 can transfer virtually any media files onto your iOS device without loss and without needing iTunes. It's really great. Right now, listeners to The Next Track can save 15% on Walter 2 with the discount code The Next Track or TNT, but only until January 2nd, 2017. Your time's limited. So buy Walter 2 now and save. For more details, visit our site, thenexttrack.com slash Walter. That's W-A-L-T-R. Our year-end sampler continues now with musician, historian, and author Elijah Wald, who joined us on episode number 20 for a discussion about Delta Blues. You use Robert Johnson as an example, and, and this is probably the best example one could choose because, as I said earlier, he is sort of at the top of the pyramid when we look back from our white knowledge of the blues. But back in the day... Very few of these musicians really knew who he was. Well, I think one of the things that it's easy to forget is that, you know, Robert Johnson, to people in Mississippi of his generation, sounded modern because he sounded like the guys on records from Chicago and Indianapolis. But to people in Chicago and Indianapolis, he already sounded old fashioned and they were already getting away from that. And that's a real disconnect for us because one of the things we love about him is that he has that sound of the deep, dark Delta, not just in 1935. I mean, the songs that these days people tend to most talk about of Robert Johnson are his versions of older Mississippi guys like Skip James and Sun House, which was the most archaic part of his repertoire. And it's the part that's most exciting for us and was least exciting to the people around him in his day. And that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. I mean, that's not a value judgment in any way, shape or form. That's just saying we have different tastes. How is it that we regard Robert Johnson as the focal point or, as Kirk said, the top of the pyramid? I've never heard him described as a shameless self-promoter unlike someone like W.C. Handy, who copyrighted and published and took credit for a lot of traditional blues songs. So how is it that Johnson is considered a primary source for Mississippi blues music? How did that happen? Um, There are a couple of reasons. One of them is that the stuff was really well recorded quite late. I mean, 1935, 36, 37 is, is very late for acoustic Delta blues. And because of that, the technology was good. And a man named John Hammond at Columbia Records fell in love with that stuff already in the 1930s. And so those records, not only the the old 78s, but the original metal parts that they were made from were preserved. So you can hear Robert Johnson sounding like it was recorded yesterday. Whereas you hear Sun House on scratchy old Paramount 78s where you can barely hear the music or Blind Lemon Jefferson. So part of it is just that stroke of luck. But there's another thing, which is he was, he's the first major blues artist, country blues artist, rural blues artist, who learned more off records than he learned from the people around him. And as a result, if you listen to Robert Johnson's repertoire, you're hearing the sound of Sun House, who was the guy he learned from in his neighborhood. But you're also hearing him doing the sound of Leroy Carr, the sound of Lonnie Johnson, the sound of Petey Wheatstraw, 
So it's sort of just in Robert Johnson, you have this picture of all these different blues styles from that period, whereas everyone else from that period, the rural players, you tend to just be hearing one style. So he's, you know, there's just, there's a breadth of knowledge in his playing because he has access to all the records. So he stood on the shoulders of giants, as it were. Exactly. I mean, the people who were recording 10 years earlier, people like Blind Lemon Jefferson, didn't have records to listen to. And so they just sound like them, whereas he's got all these different styles. He's a, it's a much more varied body of work. One of the interesting things you, you go into a, a fair amount of detail about in this book is about what was popular at the time. And again, from our white, let's say 1960s, 1970s on perspective looking back, the music that we're considering to be the best, and I'm doing air quotes here, authentic blues, isn't in any way what was really popular music back then. Well, not by 1935. I mean, by 1935, if you asked people, who's your favorite blues artist, um, probably most people would have said the Count Basie band. I mean, the Count Basie band defined the current blues sound by 1936, 1937, the time that Robert Johnson was recording. Um, if you ask people... And we don't consider that music to be blues now. Well, I, I do. <laughs> I mean, what, what can I say? Okay, you do. But I'd say the general public, when they think of blues, they don't think of a big band. Um, all I can say is if you ever saw B.B. King, you saw somebody fronting a band like the Count Basie Orchestra circa 1936, 37. I mean, a lot of us have seen that. We've just, you know, there's, there's a, a way of talking about this that puts B.B. King in the category with Robert Johnson rather than the category with Count Basie. But that's not sonic. If you yeah. listen to the records, it sounds like the Count Basie band more than it sounds like Robert Johnson. But but you also mentioned that a lot of these musicians liked other types of popular music. And in some ways, particularly the, the blues revival of the 60s, sort of pigeonholed them into playing this older blues music, which wasn't always what they really liked most. Yeah, well, you know, one of the funny things about it all is that a lot of people like us, um, maybe white, maybe middle class, people living in the 21st century, think there's nothing strange about us liking black music from the Mississippi Delta, but think it's very peculiar that black people from the Mississippi Delta liked Bing Crosby. Um, you know, there's this tendency to think of them as living in a limited world and us not. But the fact is, it makes much more sense that somebody black in Mississippi would aspire to the world of Bing Crosby than that we would aspire to be poor and black in the Mississippi Delta. And yeah, Bing Crosby is a perfect example. I mean, Robert Johnson, among the people who knew him, was famous for the fact that the latest hits coming on the radio, he could play all of that stuff and that he could yodel like Jimmy Rogers. Um, and, you know, the big name, and I mentioned him a bunch in my book, is Leroy Carr, who's a name who's largely forgotten by blues fans today, and who was simply the most popular male blues singer of the late 20s and early 30s, hands down. And when you listen to Robert Johnson, you're constantly hearing echoes of Leroy Carr. I'm just trying to picture Robert Johnson doing White Christmas or something like that, or, or doing... I did it my way. Well, it, it was it was too early for those particular hits, but 
I mean, when you listen to Leroy Carr, actually, is a perfect example, because thank God he got to record a couple but of But a few years later, they would have sung them, right? Uh, when that stuff came around, I mean... Yeah, they, they would have sung these songs Lonnie later. Johnson, when he was rediscovered in the early 60s, was singing I, I Lost Left My Heart in San Francisco and Red Sails in the Sunset. Yeah. And he was singing them well, I would add. Uh, how, how did the blues revival actually take place? Who started it? Is this an offshoot of the folk music seen in the in Greenwich Village in the 60s? Um, there were really two paths. A lot of people, I mean, for example, in Britain, it almost all came through jazz. I mean, it, the basic blues revival in Britain, even Skiffle, even doing Woody Guthrie songs, came by way of T Chris Barber and trad jazz bands. And some of that happened in the United States as well. I mean, Big Bill Brunsey, in fact, Robert Johnson, um, the way people heard about Robert Johnson was that John Hammond organized a concert in 1938 and again in 39 called From Spirituals to Swing that was a history of jazz and that ended up with Count Basie and Benny Goodman on stage. But in the early stages, he wanted Robert Johnson. As it happened, Robert Johnson had just died. So as a substitute, he brought in Big Bill Brunsey, and that's why everyone in Britain discovered blues through Big Bill Brunsey in the 40s and 50s and Sonny Terry. Um, but he played two Robert Johnson records from the stage. The only records he played on stage were of African tribal music and of Robert Johnson because he personally thought Robert Johnson was the greatest blues he'd ever heard. And I think I say in the book in 1938, he was probably the only person on earth who felt that way. But thanks to the fact that he was at Columbia Records, the first LP on a major label ever of a traditional blues player other than Josh White, came out in 1961 on Columbia Records, and it was King of the Delta Blues Singers by Robert Johnson. And it completely changed the way a lot of people, particularly people in the rock world like Keith Richards and Eric Clapton, thought about blues. Contemporary classical composer Timo Andrus was our guest on episode number 24 and, sounding a lot like any songwriter really, demystified the process of composing. When did you decide that you wanted to be a composer? It was sort of a gradual realization. I mean, I always knew that I wanted to be a musician um, pretty much since I first sat down at a keyboard, which was when I was seven. And I, I, so I started piano lessons very soon after that and... I also was writing down music from really the very beginning. I mean, uh, I can remember even, I, like I didn't know that music paper existed, so I would just like draw score lines on, on loose leaf and write stuff down. And for some reason, I've always felt a compulsion to do that. It's, it's a very mysterious thing to me because, of course, m most of the music being made today is not written down. It's not, it's not notated in that in that way. It probably ninety nine percent of it is is not written down. Do you mean like uh, like pop music that's usually written and recorded and produced in a studio? Or? I mean all basically all music. The the system of Western notation it's it's, it's very much a niche these days. And it, it's you know for most music it's just it's it's not necessary. Um, but it turns out that it works, still works very well for this idea of having the one person who comes up with the music and then other people who execute it. 
Um, and so that's always sort of the system that I've been fascinated with and uh, the sort of kind of uh, friction that you get between the idea of a composer, which is translated in, the, in this very specific, but also very, very vague language to another person who interprets it. And that that person is kind of as important an artist as the author. That's, I think, the core of the thing that I love about quote unquote classical music, about this, this world that I work in. And it, what's really mysterious to me is it's like, that is what fascinated me when I was seven, when I was writing lines down on, on printer paper. Do, do you mean what fascinated you was that you could write something down that someone else could then reproduce? Yeah, and that it, I could sort of capture sound or the idea of a sound in this, this very graphical way. Because um, I've, I've always, before I... Um, before I, I got into music, I wanted to be a visual artist. Uh, I, guess I, I guess I always had um, a career plan. But yeah, but when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be a painter. And I, I still am really obsessed with like uh, the design of things and, and how my scores look and how my website looks. And it, to me, it's sort of all, uh, it all rotates around the same aesthetic core in a way. You, you said you, you used the word classical music before and you did the little air quotes around classical. So far, you have two albums that were released on Nonesuch Records, Shy and Mighty, which is an album of music for two pianos, which certainly doesn't sound classical, and Homestretch, which has your version of a Mozart piano concerto, your own piano concerto, and a piece where you riff on some songs by Brian Eno. That's not truly classical music. Now, we, we had Alex Ross of The New Yorker on some weeks ago, and we asked what classical music was. And obviously, it's very hard to come to a definition. But you did well, use... Well, he's the expert. <laughs> well, he he knows a lot more than any of us, but you're the one making the music, and yet you still call it classical. Why did you actually use that term? Because I was thinking before the show, well, what are we going to say of the music he writes? What genre is your music? Well, I mean, I, I use the term classical in air quotes because it's sort of useful shorthand for the arrangement that I was talking about of having a composer and a notated score and performers who mostly play acoustic instruments. Um, th that is sort of the, the world that I'm referring to. And of course, we do a lot more besides capital C, classical. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to come up with a, a, a name or a definition that encompasses everything we do. Um, on the other hand, I feel very strongly that that's not really my job to come up with that name. Um, I don't like, to, I don't really like, uh, to think in terms of, well, basically by the, by the time you put a label on anything, it's, it sort of becomes marketing. And then if you, if you try to work backwards and like write the music for that marketing term, then it, it just sounds like marketing. I think it works that way for listeners, too. I don't like labels and genres um, because I like a lot of different sounding things. Right. So my personal generalized theory of music appreciation can be boiled down to human beings make noises with their mouths and their hands and their feet and uh, occasionally use devices 
to augment those noises, and some of those noises I like. I think that's about as specific as you should ever get. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I imagine that as a composer, you want to be able to create your noises in the way that you think listeners will find pleasant and appealing without being boxed in by a genre. Well, yes, and and uh, and that being pleasant is is not everyone's end goal. No, quite the contrary. In fact, some people write music in order to not be pleasant. We won't mention names about all of the serialists and, <laughs> you know, people with those odd ideas. And, and personally, I've never understood why someone wants to listen to some of those Scandinavian symphonies that just sound like the soundtrack to a horror movie. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, sometimes I, I'm reminded of, uh, do, do you know this piece, The Most Unwanted Music? No. <laughs> I'll have to send it to you. It's it's um, basically they did a survey of what people like and don't like in the music that they listen to, just a you know random sampling. And so and then using those results, the composer Dave Soldier came up with two pieces. One which is the things that people most want in their music, and then the masterpiece is this sprawling like 25 minute track called the most unwanted music that encompasses everything that people said they didn't want to listen to. Um, and it's, it's like, it's actually a, a wonderful, it's kind of a wonderful piece. Like it, it's one of these things, like once you start listening, you have to listen to all 25 minutes. But I'm often reminded of that in new music concerts that I go to. It's like, okay, this person is really, you know, they have very specific tastes and, uh, they're going to lay it on me for 15 minutes or whatever. And, and uh, I'm going to try and put myself in the place of someone who really goes for that. I think, and I think it's a, a very useful mental exercise, even if, you know, what, what I want to put on on a daily basis is not necessarily, you know, quarter tone vibraphones and, and screaming. Um, I remember uh, around the time when I was maybe a freshman in college, I made a, a very distinct resolution for myself to always be open-minded about new stuff that I heard, um, to, to sort of, as one would try to be with a, a, a new acquaintance, um, you know, give it the benefit of the doubt. I, I grew up very sort of narrowly focused on classical music, I, studying piano and, and studying at Juilliard and, and uh, just sort of discovering the classical canon. That was what I was fascinated with and I didn't have time really for anything else. And as a result, I was, I was not a, an omnivorous listener up to the point when I was, uh, you know, 18 or 19. Um, and then when I, moved away from home and, and, you know, was thrown in this, this sort of, uh, very diverse kind of, uh, environment of musical taste, uh, that was the Yale undergrad population at the time. I, I kind of didn't know where I fit in. It, I had a little bit of a hard time for a while and I sort of had to teach myself to listen to music more objectively, I guess. Now, on the other hand, I, I do feel that composers maybe should not be the most omnivorous listeners. That after you sort of go through this period of discovery, which most of the time will happen when you're, when you're young, 
you kind of end up focusing on this uh, handful of things that you really love. And um, if you're going to, if you're going to pursue this, this kind of weird uh, career path of trying to sort of hone your voice, try, trying to find the music that is the most you, it can often be more confusing if you're if you're listening to you know all the music that's out there, uh, you know, trying to keep up with everything that's new, or you know, there are people whose job this is uh, to sort of to listen to everything. Yeah, to to listen to everything and to be open minded. Those people, I mean, the people who should be doing that are the gatekeepers, you know, and I, I use that to mean not only music critics and, and journalists, but you know, arts administrators, people who run institutions and people who program for orchestras and people who run music festivals. And, you know, if those people aren't listening widely, then it's extremely destructive to the whole field. Composers need to, we need to focus. We'll take another short break here and get back to our year-end sampler in one minute. You know, I told you earlier that I've been having great success using Walter 2 to expand my audio download horizons, but I also use it to get video on my iPad. One thing I dislike fussing with is when I want to watch my personal videos that I keep on my iMac, but sharing with the Videos app on my iPad is just too fussy. So with Walter 2, I just drag and drop the video files I want to watch, they upload to the iPad, I watch them right then and there. There's no waiting for the iPad to sync with my iMac library, which never seems to be very brisk anyway. And I don't have to use some convoluted sharing scheme or workaround. Walter 2 has really made getting and watching video on my iPad a breeze. I highly recommend it. It's a great tool to have. And you can get Walter 2 at a discount price right now. And I mean now, because time is running out. Take 15% off the price of Walter 2 by using the code THENEXTTRACK or TNT. Go to thenexttrack.com slash Walter for more info. Save 15% on Walter 2 with the code THENEXTTRACK or TNT. Now this special discount is only available until January 2nd, 2017, so do it now. Transfer virtually any media files onto your iOS device without iTunes and without loss with Walter 2. Now let's move on with our year-end sampler. We indulged Kirk's Grateful Dead obsession when we invited music journalist and author David Brown to talk about the history of the dead on episode number 23. Would you call yourself a deadhead or are you just a fan and you approach this as a journalist? I, I'm not a deadhead. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a rabid deadhead. I didn't follow them around and so forth and so forth. But uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a deadhead journalist. I guess okay. <laughs> maybe it's a little bit of both. Because so I, I, I saw them maybe eight times. Um, first time I saw them was at the Palladium in April 77. And then I saw them, you know, six, seven other times. And I never followed them around. I never saw them outside of either New York City or Nassau Coliseum. But since the band has started releasing official releases of old recordings of live performances, I buy pretty much everything. Not a fan of the 90s, but that's a topic for another show, I think, you know, which decade is best. So, yeah, I would say that I'm a deadhead in the sense that, you know, I'm, I listen to them very, very often. I got the T-shirt. I'm wearing a dead T-shirt here. Um, I've got a couple dozen dead T-shirts. He always um, wears a dead T-shirt. No, no, no. I don't no. think I've I, ever seen you not wear one. <laughs> I, I do have a lot. So you said you first saw them in 73. Uh, I've heard them in 73. Ah, okay. So when did you see them live the first time? Uh, I saw them in 87. Really? Not until 87. 
well after things had started going down that hill, that great hill that leads to the great rock history of the sky kind of thing. Kind of, yeah, in a way. I, and I think it's because, um, well, I guess I was a poor college student up until then. I didn't have the, didn't have the money. Uh, but, you know, the record, you know, I always wanted to see them in the early 80s. And everything I was hearing was not positive. You know, I and mean, that was Jerry was heading downhill. People say, oh, don't go see them now. I'm like, really? Yeah, they're, they're not good. They're not good now. Jerry's having problems. Don't go see them. I had a, a guy named Phil in my college, uh, in my dorm in NYU, who was always telling me, yeah, no, wait a while. <laughs> well, well, I got to I got to see them the first time right at the right at their peak in 1977. And I think most deadheads agree that 77 was really the best year all around for live shows. And I did see them several times after that in 1980, 81. And it's true that after 81 or 82, I didn't see them anymore. Now, I left the States in 84, so I didn't have a chance to see Jerry, you know, post-diabetic coma and all that, which happened in 86. But it's true that in the early 80s, the dead were, you know, this was MTV came out and the dead were all of a sudden like these old guys, you know, compared with the new wave and stuff on MTV. One of the uh, chapters in the book is about 1984. And, and I, I was able to uh, piece together uh, the, uh, one of those um, kind of chaotic recording sessions for the album that never was. Yeah. Uh, because I thought that was, I wanted to, I wanted to tackle that period and which I felt had not really been tackled in depth in a lot of the other dead books. Um, a lot of, you know, them sort of um, kind of uh, skip through the eighties pretty quickly, but I was like, no, no, let's, let's pause here. And um, through um, Dennis McNally, who I came to know, uh, he he was at one of he was at one of those sessions in '84. So he was he was nice enough to give me his notes. I was able to talk to Phil Lesh a bit about it, and and the recording engineer who worked with them, and some other people, Mickey Hart as well, about that session. About those couple of days there in '84, where they tried um, unsuccessfully to make that the record, and uh, you know, between Jerry's uh, poor health and uh, various other uh, indulgences around the band and uh, you know, everything was ready to go and they couldn't do it. And I thought that would be really interesting to recreate that moment and, and, and uh, paint a picture of, of uh, the dysfunction. Yeah, the, the difficulties they were having. Mo most, brand, most bands faced with something like that, they would have probably broken up. The, 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 the individual musicians would have gone off to solo projects. And, and of course, some of them did start their solo projects around that time, but they still stuck together in spite of all of that. And, and I think that's interesting that the legacy of the dead was that this band did have this glue that with the exception of, you know, the curse of the keyboard player, the band members stuck together for 30 years. They did. And... Uh... It's a, it is quite fascinating that they did that. I mean, I think it was partly, um, I think there was probably a financial motivation. I mean, after, one of the things that was so fascinating to me to discover was that even though they didn't release a studio album between 1980 and 1987, yeah. um, and that those were not great years for them in many ways, but every year they got bigger in terms of their live draw. And to the point where in 85 and 86, they had no choice but to move into stadiums yeah. because they could no longer play these uh, theaters or outdoor sheds and, and, and know, arenas like Madison and arenas and yeah. yeah. And, and just camp out there for three or four days. Um, 
there's a, there's another story in my book about about a band meeting that happened then. It, it was it was in uh, late '85 or something at, at Front Street, their studio, where they finally they were rehearsing. Afterwards, they all congregated in the in the little office in the front, and somebody was like, you know, we got to start planning this this uh, summer '86 tour, and you know, we really need to think about stadiums because maybe that's the way to go from now on. You got too many people. Uh, congregating around these shows without tickets, and, and maybe it's just worth to, you know, instead of yeah, three nights at the garden or whatever, or it's an outdoor uh, venue somewhere, let's just do one or two shows at a 50,000 seat stadium. Boom, there you go. And, you know, Jerry was very reluctant uh, in that meeting about it. He hated the way um, the music sounded in stadium. I yeah. agree. I've yeah. seen. I can't stand seeing shows in stadiums, uh, but they 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 sort of went along with it. I mean, it was it was a bigger paycheck, so that certainly was some one factor. Well, it was a bigger t- paycheck, but just like in 1974, they had all of these people around them, their family, the people that were working for them, and they had to maintain them. And they got to the point where the only way they could do this was to keep getting bigger. Right, and they took that break, and then they slowly kind of rebuilt. And next thing you know, they rebuilt to the point where yeah, by the by the mid 80s. They can play stadiums, and that was so interesting to me. Even though they had they, they stopped releasing new music, they were completely out of favor in the media. Yeah. Uh, to the point when when I was approached by Rolling Stone in 1987 to review In the Dark, um, I was just a kid sort of starting out. But they, they came to me because they couldn't find anyone else <laughs> who who liked them. Yeah. That's not the case with the magazine now. There are lots of people on staff or or who write to them who appreciate the dead. But back in 1987, they were they were they were so disliked. Yeah. I mean, the editor at the time said to me, "Well, I'm just trying to find someone who doesn't wish they were that they didn't exist." <laughs> You know, and I was like, no, I, I appreciate. I, I'm glad they exist. I'll review that record, but um, but they were. But the point was, yeah, they, they kept getting bigger throughout that period. So even though there was all this dysfunction in the band and, and moments where you think it would all kind of fall apart, um, it, it was it was a good living for them, and they certainly still had enough. You know, uh, there's enough creative spark there. To, keep it going and what else were they going to do i mean yeah, that was exactly you know, they kind of they liked you know one of their road managers was like well, what are they going to do they didn't want to just go home and hang out with their quote-unquote old ladies all the time and yeah. you know just being on the road is fun you yeah. know they were catered to you know? didn't they weren't they responsible for some innovations in stadium performances i mean didn't they invent or maybe i should say advance some technological innovations for stadium performance? They did uh, as time went on. Yes, they, the, thing, the thing about the dead is um, they have, I think, an image, especially among people who don't like them, uh, as these anachronistic hippies, and they just you know, get on stage and take drugs and noodle around. And they did do that. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. But, a lot. But uh, the dead were always... Um, forward thinking in terms of, uh, especially in terms of technology. So, you know, back in the, in the, in, in the late sixties and into the early seventies with the help of Owsley, they helped, they started developing one of the best sound systems. I'll just put it that way. One of the best sound systems a band had, had had up to that point. And wasn't Owsley behind Alembic Sound, the company that um, made all these wonderful sound systems? Absolutely. He was part of that. And so they, they were always kind of, uh, 
they they always wanted their music to sound as good as possible on stage for themselves and for their fans. And that continued into the eighties when they went into stadiums. Uh, they didn't quite, they didn't have the wall of sound anymore, but they really um, honed their sound system. And they also started using things like MIDI technology yeah. so that you know, Jerry could have his guitar sound like a trumpet yeah. or a keyboard or something. And they were pioneers of that. And that was also happening right around that time in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. So they were always really interested in moving. They, they were, they were not just a bunch of lazy hippies in that way. They really, um, whether it was that or setting up their own ticket office, which kind of failed, but, but they, they had the experience. But they had the experience and they, they had these interesting ideas of, of thinking outside of the box, yeah. both in terms of the business and technology that uh, I think they're only starting to get credit for that now. The whole concept, and, and a lot of people have talked about it, the fact that they more or less allowed people to record their shows meant that more people could hear the music and hear the excitement of a live performance and then buy tickets. Since the albums didn't sell a lot and they did make a lot of money from touring, I don't remember how many years, but they were the biggest grossing touring act in the States for a number of years, weren't they? They were. They were, And yeah, again, a lot of those years were years they didn't even have a new record to promote. In fact, isn't that sort of the time when it changed, that concerts changed from promoting records to actually trying to make money? Yeah, also. right. And, you know, just to go back, this also ties into the previous question about technology. Um, the whole idea of an unplugged set even the, they started doing that back in 69 and 70. Nope. You know, that was another little minor innovation. Now it's like normal. You have, you had MTV unplugged for years and all that, but for a band to, for an electric band to say, okay, we're going to, we're just going to grab these acoustic guitars in the middle of the show or the beginning of the show and just do a whole set of like folkish music. Like no one was doing that in the late sixties and it was a very cool thing. And, and so it was very, it was very, it was even cooler when they revived that. Uh, in, in 1980, uh, I'm not sure if the whole band was that psyched about it, according to someone I talked to who was backstage at the Warfield. And Garcia, you know, was always a, an acoustic fan and yeah. a, a bluegrass fan. And he was really into it. I think he had to kind of talk the rest of the guys into into doing it. It was a little suddenly outside, out of their zone. Finally, we chatted with NPR and Rolling Stone music critic Will Hermes about music discovery in episode number nine. So how do people discover music today? Obviously, for you as a music critic, it's different from average people. But how do you see people discovering music now? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Um, I think it's partly a function of age and that people feel out of it. But I think it's also a function of we now have everything at our fingertips. The entire history of recorded music, everything is there, but how do you choose? Who are the gatekeepers that you trust? Um, Some people will tell me they go to the NPR music website, um, which has a a number of pretty good curators in different genres. Um, And and you get a lot of first listens of new albums there. They do. So you can go on any given week and see that they post maybe five new albums that will be coming out next week. Um, although what coming out means yeah. at this point is yeah. kind of academic. Um, and you can you can check them out. And it's usually top shelf stuff, whatever the genre is. Yeah. So that's, that's one way of finding stuff. Um, I mean, for me, using these streaming services, I have my own aesthetic kind of uh, prejudice prejudices but i will you know very often just go through 
Tidal new releases or Spotify new releases just to see, you know, what the current state of pop music is this particular week um, to see who dropped what. And uh, and that's, you know, that's a good way to survey the, you know, the most hyped stuff. Um, and then for, you know, more esoteric stuff, it, it depends. I still go the old route of reading magazines. I mean, Uncut Magazine, like I adore Uncut Magazine. Those guys and women have great sensibility, really in my wheelhouse very frequently, super smart. So, you know, I read The Wire, which, you know, I think is yeah. outstanding. They go a little bit, you know, deeper into obscure stuff than I sometimes go, but always learn stuff from them. And, uh, and, uh, and, and The Wire has downloadable, I think it's monthly um, CDs you can download. So, you know, tracks you can sample. Right. Yeah. And un uncut, if you get the paper magazine, they also have that old, you know, the, the old style CD sampler with every issue. I, I wonder these days what percentage of people care about music enough to want to discover new music, because, you know, you, you look back, what was it 15 years ago, Chris Anderson wrote this book, The Long Tail, this sort of, you know, um, utopio libertarian ideal that everyone's going to buy everything because it's available and it turned out to be totally false and right now you've got the the three biggest pop stars who are getting 90 percent of the streams um I, I kind of get the feeling now of course you know we're too old to know what younger people were doing really but back in the day when we were teenagers it seemed like more people cared about music and cared about new music or at least a greater percentage of people. However, fewer people actually listened to a lot of music because most people only had radio. Right. Yeah, well, I think people used to get it from radio, and, you know, now you can get it from radio. I mean, I have re young, younger relatives who they're just into pop music, and they get it from the radio, and that's fine. Radio uh, is still number one for discovery, although I think I saw recently that YouTube is running neck and neck, but radio is still just as vital today as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, don't you think? Right, I would guess. I mean, if you go out to you go out to restaurants and malls and, you know, if it's not radio, it's, you know, some sort of radio-like streaming service that's uh that's been programmed and uh you know, the people who want more obscure stuff will search it out. I have two nephews who are in their late teens and 20s and uh they certainly read read Pitchfork. They read, you know, a number of, of journals that kind of stay on top of indie rock and hip hop and electronic stuff. And uh, yeah, I go to I go to Pitchfork a lot too. I learn a, learn a lot of stuff about things that you know might have gone under my radar because working for Rolling Stone and NPR, I I tend to go towards certain things that are in their aesthetic wheelhouse, whatever that is. Um, per se. I'm always looking for quote unquote good stuff, but uh, you know, there are, <laughs> that's a relative term. And there you have it. Thanks to Soft Arena for sponsoring this special year-end episode of The Next Track. Remember, you only have until January 2nd of the new year to save 15% on the price of Walter 2, so you can get started using pretty much any media content on your iPhone, iPod, or iPad. Visit thenexttrack.com slash W-A-L-T-R for more details. And remember, the discount code is The Next Track or TNT. This has been The Next Track. 
a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.